inner. It's very exciting. All right, Matthew chapter 20 is where we're going to be, so if you want to make your way uh, that direction, uh, there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. If you don't have one and you like to look at it in black and white, so feel free to reach over and grab one of those. Uh, As you make your way that direction, let me just remind you that uh, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He's writing uh, to Jews about their long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so as uh, Matthew does that, and and keeping in mind all the different gospel accounts are actually written intentionally by the Holy Spirit to a specific uh, audience. And what I mean by that is uh, John's account, for example, he writes to the world at large. And as he writes... He highlights the, the uh, deity of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, he's writing to a Greek audience. And so as he writes to the Greeks, they love science and they love mythology and they love perfection. They want the perfect man. And so Luke writes to a Greek audience and he uh, continues to highlight the phrase of Jesus, the Son of Man. He, he shows that he is the perfect man. And even for Mark's gospel, he's writing to a Roman audience, which is made up predominantly of slaves, a very fast-paced Roman society. And so he writes the shortest gospel, the most uh, action-packed gospel, and the key word in Mark is the word immediately. And so we see over and over again, Jesus immediately did this. But then we arrive at Matthew, the book we've been studying through for several months now, and the key word here is Fulfilled. The word is the fulfillment of Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so, in chapters 1 through 10, Matthew shows the king as he is revealed, the first revelation of Jesus Christ. As their long-awaited Messiah is revealed to them, uh, the issue is they don't care for the message. They don't like it at all. It disrupts their society, their way of life, their religious system. And so, they, in verses 11 through 13, they resist. They adamantly resist the message that Jesus brings to them. And so in chapters 14 through 20, what we see is the king is now retreating. We've been through this uh, for several weeks, several chapters now, and this is the final chapter of the king retreating. He heads to other areas, lands that want to hear him. He heads up to Lebanon and over to Damascus. But as he retreats, he doesn't simply just uh, retreat off by himself. He takes the disciples along with them so that they can learn from him firsthand. They were getting a firsthand education from the Messiah because they're going to be the start of the new church. And so he's giving them training and teaching them. And what we went through last week in Matthew 19, this uh, first portion of today is essentially going to be a continuation of that teaching. And there in verse 27 of Matthew 19, Peter, after Jesus has just shared with the rich young ruler who came to the Lord and said, Lord, I've been perfect. What must I do to still have access to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus went through a list of the commands in the Ten Commandments, and he checked the boxes. He was doing pretty good until Jesus said, all right, now go sell everything you have, uh, sell it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he went away very sad. It turned out that Jesus pointed out a bit of an eye problem, uh, not the EYE, but the capital I problem that the rich young ruler had because we're told he had many possessions. He was pretty bummed out after he heard this. So Peter, in response in verse 27, says uh, to Jesus, Lord, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? He asks, he asks the next uh, most natural question, if you tell this guy to, to leave everything and follow you, we've already done that, so what about us? 
And Jesus responds in verse 28 and says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you, ha you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So you want some promises, Pete. Here's some promises for you. I'm going to lay them out there. They're pretty uh, profound. You're going to whatever you gave, and you think you gave a lot. I'm going to give back to you a hundredfold in eternity. But then he says this in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And that leaves us scratching our head just a little bit. What exactly do you mean by that, Jesus? He knows this, so he's going to continue on in uh, chapter 20 and give a parable to help back up what he's meaning there in verse 30. Now, you might recall that a parable is actually the combination of two Greek words. A para, meaning alongside or to pair with, and then bole, meaning alongside. And so it literally translated means to cast alongside. And what's Jesus doing? He's casting an earthly story alongside a heavenly meaning. And so the purpose of a parable is really to just give us an earthly understanding of, the, of a heavenly concept. And so this is what Jesus is going to give them in this first part of chapter 20. He says in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, the end of the workday, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. And so, verse 8, when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when he called those who were hired at the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius, a day's wage. But when he came to the first, they supposed they would receive more. They likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And so, verse 16 Jesus reiterates this same line, so the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so what we see is, uh, first of all, this story.
story of the vineyard, this parable of the workers out in the vineyard. And we have to understand that uh, this is an agrarian society. They would have uh, got this working in a vineyard much uh, more easily than what we do. But the way it worked is as the harvest went along, they could see that the grapes were beginning uh, to ripen. Now, you wanted to wait until they're as ripe as possible before you took them to market, but one of the issues is uh, if a rain were to come in, if a storm event would come in as the grapes were ripening and beginning to soften a little bit, it could actually destroy your crop. So the harvest could be lost if a rain came in and ruined it. And so it was the landowner in this story that was looking out at the skies, looking at the situation around him, and he could see that there were dark skies beginning to come in. He could tell that, that it was time to go and actually reap the harvest, to bring the fruit back into the, the storehouse. And so as they would see these weather conditions taking place, they would go to the marketplace, hire a bunch of guys to come and work the field. They come in to work the field, and then uh, continuing three hours into the day, he looks out and sees, boy, it's getting a little nastier. The sky's getting even darker. There's lightning off in the horizon. You better go and get even more help. And so the steward of the ground went and he brought in more workers to continue to work the field. And again, so on as the storm drew closer. And so as Jesus is sharing this story, we're reminded, uh, by the way, to pay attention to the conditions around us. So think about how this would have resonated uh, with them as Jesus is teaching. What did he say back in Matthew 9? But he said, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray for the workers to work the harvest. The fruit that he's speaking of is clearly uh, the people. He's speaking of, of souls, of humans to actually bring into the storehouse before what? Before the rain. What did these people know of God's judgment leading up to this point? But they knew of the flood of Noah. Great rain brought about uh, great judgment the wrath of God was brought about and so what Jesus is saying to them is look pay attention <laughs> look at the skies you can tell that God's wrath is coming at some point there's only so long this can continue and so pray for workers to go out and work the fields to bring in his harvest and so to go out and be hired in the workplace I'd ask you this the only quality that they really had to possess to be able to come in and work the harvest um, was willingness they simply needed to be willing to go into the field and work and Jesus uh, says the landowner was good to them he agreed to the wages ahead of time they they asked for a day's wages a denarius it was a fair day's wage they agreed to it and yet as the day went on and they saw uh, that the other workers were brought in later and then they were paid the same they were upset about it Jesus uh, response to their cries of this is unfair to say look isn't it my right to give to whomever I choose I've already given to you what we agreed upon I gave you a fair day's wage and so we ask the question what does all this mean right maybe you didn't ask the question but I asked it for you so I'm glad you asked so what does all this mean three different things that we can take away specifically from this message first of all uh, we will be rewarded. <laughs> we will be rewarded when we get to heaven. I realize we're not working for rewards, but the reality is we're going to be rewarded if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, for one, am not turning down any rewards Jesus is going to heap on me. I mean, if he's going to give me a crown, I'm like, bring it on. I'll take it. And so if you don't want your crown, throw it over my way. I'll take that too. I'm not going to be shy about taking rewards in heaven. And these rewards 
are eternal. But also keep in mind, there are going to be surprises. There are going to be some that are called up to the front that you did not see that coming. So for many of us, we could look at great uh, Christians of the faith. You take the, the Billy Grahams or the C.H. Spurgeons or the D.L. Moody's, and we go, these guys are giants of the faith, and they are no doubt going to get rewarded in heaven. But for each and every one of those men, do you know what was taking place prior to their large revival ministries? Prayer. There were people gathered by the thousands to intercede on behalf of the folks that would come in to receive Christ. And I am submitting to you that there are mighty prayer warriors that are going to be called up to the front of the line, and they're going to be given a big old whopper of a crown. People you don't even know, names you've never heard of, they didn't write any books. And to go in even a step further, I think there are lots and lots of people who have cleaned bathrooms in churches, swept floors in churches to make sure that people had a, a comfortable environment to come into that are going to be rewarded for their acts of service. And, and finally, there are going to be ladies and men that have given their lives to children's church. I mean, you talk about a spot that does not see much fruit. I mean, it is a beatdown down there. That's why I hide up here with you all, because it's scary down there. But, but the reality is there are many women and men who have given their lives to work with children and youth, and they have seen no fruit. But years later, the fruit happens. And I believe there are going to be uh, little ladies who taught children's church for years. They're going to get called up to the front of the line, and Jesus is going to put one big old whopper of a crown right on top of their heads. They're going to be acknowledged for the sacrifices that they made. Now, secondly, we are encouraged by this story to watch out for a jealous heart. I mean, for these uh, men and women that were called to work in this field, they immediately cried out, unfair, even though God gave them exactly what they'd asked for. Our promise in this spot is salvation. We all are working for that same price. We're not working for it. It's a gift, but that's the promise of the gift for those that come to work for the landowner. And so we see this warning to watch out for our jealous hearts, to not be so quick to call out unfair. And when you look at an Old Testament example of this, you go back to Numbers chapter 12. And here you've got a lady named Miriam. She's the brother to a pretty famous guy, a guy named Moses. Now, Miriam would have been the little girl that put baby Moses in the ark and sent him on down the Nile River and kept an eye out while Pharaoh's daughter collected the ark and saved the little baby. Miriam was there for Moses, even when he couldn't take care of himself. And now, here we find all these years later, 80-some years later, now Moses is in charge. Well, who made Moses the mouthpiece? I mean, Miriam's thinking, look, I did a pretty good job. We crossed the Red Sea. I had the tambourine. I mean, I was like, ka-chink, 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 with that tambourine, making it happen. I was worshiping. How come, how come God didn't make me the mouthpiece? And so they begin to grumble against uh, Moses, wondering why God put him in charge. After all, he was uh, Miriam and Aaron's little brother. And so what we find is that uh, for Miriam, she got leprosy. <laughs> a leprous spot broke out on her hand. And I think when we begin to get uh, jealous and envious of others who are, receive gifts, and we begin to wonder why them and why not me, uh, it's a lot like leprosy. It, it begins small. And then it spreads and it grows before uh, very long we find ourselves completely ostracized from people. Why? Because we let jealousy actually grow up uh, in our hearts. And so 
And the reality of it is, and whether you like this or not, it is none of our business who God decides to bless. He can bless whoever he pleases. He tells us in the Psalms, the earth and all the fullness thereof is his. The cattle on a thousand hills, it's his. So anything we get from him is merely just because he loves us and wants to pour out on us, but it's none of our business to begin to complain what and who and how he gives things to. So then thirdly and finally, what we see is this. It's never too late to start. For many, many people, we let years, decades, piled on top of decades go in our lives, and we begin to get this idea that uh, surely God can't use uh, me. I mean, after 30, 40, 50, 60 years, surely he doesn't have any need for me anymore. Too much time has passed. Too many things have been done. Uh, I've, I've led too much of a life of sin. I, he couldn't possibly use me. But the reality is from this story, Jesus wasn't mincing any words. He's saying, even if you waited till 5 o'clock, even if you waited till the 11th hour, uh, you can still be used in the kingdom of heaven. So what then is the requirement? Go back to what we talked about the last slide. It's just simply willingness. That is the only requirement we have in order to be used by God. Now, what on earth would you do in the kingdom of heaven? What does God have for you? That's a great question. I'd ask him. <laughs> I, would, I would spend some time consulting him for what he might have for you. So lest you think you've uh, gotten too old or too many things have gone by, I would point you again back to Moses when you look at when God called him in his life. So for Moses, here's a guy who was set up uh, from the very get-go. He was the, the very son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, so pretty high up in command for all of Egypt. Egypt controlled the known world at that time until at the age of 40 uh, he actually committed the crime of murder. He murdered an Egyptian with his bare hands. Now, I don't think there's any of you that have murdered someone with your bare hands, so okay, nobody raised their hand, that's good. So if you haven't done that, you're doing better than Moses. Feel good about how you are doing right now. So here's Moses. He's now ran off away from Egypt because of this crime that he committed, this humiliation that's taken place. And for 40 years, he hides out in the deserts of Midian, watching over his father-in-law's sheep. And he's now 80 years old. He's washed up. He's a, a convicted felon. And now, now he's talking to a bush. That's on fire in the middle of the desert. I mean, not exactly the most glamorous of ways to be brought into ministry. And I think so often we, we get to a point like that where we think he can't use me. Surely he's not talking to me. And guess what Moses had for God? Excuses. He began to come up with all sorts of reasons why God can't use me. I don't speak well. I'm not educated enough. Besides God, don't you know they hate me? Why would they even listen to me. And so God tells Moses, what's in your hand? The staff that was in his hand. That ends up being the very thing that God used in order to communicate to the nation of Israel what was in Moses' hand. And so when we begin to give God the excuses, I'm not educated enough, I'm not knowledgeable enough, I don't have the resources to be anything in the kingdom of heaven, uh, here's the reality. Talk to anybody that's been called into ministry, and what you're going to find out is that they have no earthly clue what in the world they're doing there. 
I mean, example number one right here. There is no reason in the world why I should be sitting here right now sharing with you, except uh, God said so. That's it. That's the only thing you need. You need willingness in your heart to be able to do what he asked you to do and him saying, go and do it. Because what I've shared with you before, your calling is essentially where your burden, what are you compassionate about, where that meets your talent, that's your calling. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. So precisely what happened in the case of Moses. And here's the deal. When, we all, when it all comes down to it, when it comes down to the final uh, judgment day and we're standing before him, our promise is eternity. That's what we're promised for uh, believing in him, for him actually working in our lives. And by the way, that's a pretty awesome promise. He gives us all of the ability to do it. He gives us all the grace necessary. He gives us all the forgiveness. He put his life on the line, and then uh, he's going to give us rewards for it. I mean, that's, it doesn't get much better than that. And so we have no reason to complain about what anyone else gets because he loved us enough to die for us and give us eternity. So the final line there in verse 16, we see, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, that's tripped people up before at different times. Let me just uh, share with you like this. This is how simple it is for me. Um, He has gone out and called people unto himself. How many people did uh, Jesus love? According to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So he loved the world. The world has been called, but few have actually responded to the call. So for all that respond to the call to follow him, guess what he does? He chooses them. So whether you're a, a is God sovereign, does he know everything person, I would say yes. Do you have free will and an opportunity to choose him? I would say yes. It is, it is both and. He is not limited by what our minds can think. And so many are called, but few are chosen. It's the few that decide to actually respond to the call. Now then, continuing on in verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem took 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And so we see, again, for the second time in as many chapters, Jesus is addressing his death. This is no doubt a bummer for these guys. I mean, they've been waiting for a couple thousand years for a Messiah, and now he's going to die? Like, this doesn't even make sense. So they don't want to hear what he is uh, sharing with them. But notice with me, Jesus never, not one time, shares about his death where he doesn't also share about his resurrection. He never leaves it there in the New Testament. He doesn't just say, I'm going to go and be crucified, period. He goes on to say, but then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And that's important to remember, especially as we go through this Christian life, because oftentimes I hear Christians say this. Uh, I may have said this a time or two. uh, That's just my cross to bear. Oh, i got to deny myself and take up the cross. Just my cross to bear. But the reality is, it's not just simply your cross to bear you also have the resurrection. How often do we highlight the hope that we have in 
the resurrection. What the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19 is this. As he's sharing about the resurrection of Christ and maybe the, the greatest resurrection chapter in the New Testament, he says in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If the only hope we have is in this life and this life alone, we are of all men most pitiable. Why? Because as Jesus was dying there on the cross, he says this word in the Greek, tetelestai, meaning paid in full. So at that moment, all sin was paid for right then. My problem is I wasn't born yet, and neither were any of you. And my next problem is even if he died today, I'm going to sin again tomorrow. It's not a one-time problem. It's a perpetual problem. But understand that on the third day, why the resurrection is so vitally important is because we weren't just simply cleansed the day Jesus died on the cross, but then he rose, so we are therefore being cleansed. We have been cleansed. We are being cleansed. It's a continual process of cleansing. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the beauty of the resurrection. That's why it was so vitally important. It was the proof that the payment was accepted. And so what we see is uh, it, still in our lives, we, we have these issues, right? We have trials, we have tribulations. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Paul addressed that here in the next chapter or the next book in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This was a church that had been given a tremendous amount of wealth, a tremendous amount of power, but they had also had a lot of corruption. They had some massive issues. And by the time they get to 2 Corinthians, they have now started to work some of those corruption issues out, but now they've received some persecution. And they begin to cry and whine about it just a little bit, about the trials that they're experiencing in their life. And so Paul goes on in verse 24, and he says, Look, you think you've had trials. I'm just going to share with you a few of my trials, a little bit of my tribulation. He says in verse 24, For from the Jews... Five times I received uh, 40 stripes minus one. Uh, they would want to be uh, just a little bit kind to you when they were beating you across the back with a whip. So instead of striking you 40 times, they would take one off. They'd give you just a little bit of mercy. So five times that happened to the Apostle Paul. He goes on to say three times I was beaten with rods. Uh, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Uh, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides other things, what comes upon me daily, my concern for all the churches. Verse 29, he says, who is weak? and I am not weak. Who is made to stumble, and I, am, and I do not burn with indignation? But he says this, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Look, you're not going to have anything on my track record of trials and tribulations. That's what uh, arguably the greatest Christian in the New Testament had to say. I mean, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, all these things that have happened to me. So if you've got a list of complaints, a list of things and trials that have come up against you, but he doesn't need to stop there, I'm going to turn back a couple pages to chapter 4, verse 16. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. 
Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are seen are not seen are eternal. So what Paul's saying in combination is, yes, life is difficult. Yes, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. There's going to be hard things that come up against you. Here's my laundry list. But guess what? Um, that is a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Every day you're being made more alive in him while this flesh dies. So does it hurt a little more every morning when you get up? Yes, it does. Are there new pains that show up every day? Absolutely. That is just a reminder that this shell, this tabernacle, it is very temporary. But here's the glory. Here's the hope that we have that no one else has, that we have a temple made by hands of God, not by human hands, waiting on us. That's what we should be reflecting upon. That's the hope that we should have in Jesus Christ. And that's the question you have to ask when we're all bummed out, when we're letting all the afflictions and the trials weigh us down. Where's my hope? Because the reality is if your hope is in, here in this earth in anything, it is going to let you down. But if you believe in Jesus today, here's the beauty of it. This is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. Whatever the world can throw at you, however bad it can get, no matter what that thing is, this is as close to hell as you ever have to get as a believer in Jesus. Because what he ultimately does is he takes shame and turns it to salvation. He takes rejection, turns it into redemption. He takes grief and turns it into glory. And I submit to you, you will not find a program, a workout, an eating regimen that will possibly do that. Can't be done. So praise the Lord. He always mentions the resurrection anytime he mentions the crucifixion. Continuing on then in uh, verse 20. We read, And then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And so the mother of Zebedee's sons, this would be uh, James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee, uh, also apostles, their mother's name we see in other New Testament accounts is Salome. So Salome comes to Jesus. She kneels down before Jesus. And we know that anytime someone kneels down before another person, what are they doing? They're worshiping. She comes to Jesus to worship him, but look at what we see at the end of this verse, and to ask him for something. <laughs> She's got some things she needs from Jesus, uh, which reminds me, how often do I come to worship with an expectation? I come to worship actually looking for God to do something for me, which means I'm coming to him from a wrong place. Worship should just be from us to him because he has been so gracious in our lives. But many times we come with an expectation. We come with uh, expecting the worship to sound a certain way or be a certain way. And then, because it doesn't match those expectations, it's disappointment. Well, I don't like hymns, but here we are singing another stinking hymn. Oh, that contemporary music. Ugh, I can't take it anymore. What? Wait a minute. 
Was this about the music or was this about Jesus? And so what we see is in Hebrews 13, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says this, when we come to worship, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's what worship should truly be. Just the praise off your lips, the fruit from your lips. Now, there's some of you that say, look, I'm not a great singer. Well, here's the reality. Uh, neither am I. That's the reason I turn the music up really loud. And when I get it up loud enough, I sound just like Jake and Michaela. So I just keep turning it up louder until I sound just like them. But, but, but the reality is it's not about that. It's about you offering the sacrifice of praise from your lips to your Heavenly Father because he's been so doggone good to you. And so Salome comes, and she's got an expectation before the Lord. And so he says to her in verse 21, he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, uh, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at, the, uh, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And so she comes with an expectation for what Jesus can do for her children. Now, uh, this seems a little selfish, but the reality is uh, we all want what's best for our kids, don't we? This is the heart of a mother. She's coming, she's, she's thinking, I want what's best for my two boys. Um, but what we're going to find is um, she doesn't want any of the pain that goes along with it. So, so often we want what's best for our kids, but we don't want them to suffer at all. And I was talking to my wife about this last week, that the reality of it is, as much as I don't want my kids to suffer, and I don't want them to go through any struggles or trials or tribulations of their own, that everything that I am almost uh, predominantly is because of trials, because of suffering, because of things that I have allowed in my life, but then because of those things, I was driven to my knees to the Father. And it's in those places that I've actually been drawn closer to Jesus. And so we have to be very careful as parents to try to shelter and, and have our kids miss out on any kind of suffering because we could actually harm them from an opportunity to be driven to their knees. It's a delicate balance for sure. In verse 22, Jesus lets her in on just what she's asking for. Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? He's now turned and facing James and John. And be baptized by the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. They had no idea. They would soon enough know exactly what Jesus is talking about. In verse 23, And he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom is prepared by my Father. And Jesus had just told them in chapter 19 there were going to be 12 thrones that they were going to be able to judge from. So they were all actually promised a seat at the table. Uh, they were more concerned with the seating arrangements. <laughs> hey, Father, we'd like to be really close to you. And so they've got this uh, concern. But Jesus makes it clear, look, you're going to indeed have to drink from this cup. For these men, uh, 11 out of the 12, they would suffer gruesome deaths. Uh, the 12th, John, he gets away from death, but not after being uh, boiled, uh, assuming they would boil him alive. He died an old man, but through much pain and suffering. And so they would, in fact, have to suffer. And here's what I wanted to point out to you, that the gift of salvation is free. It is a free gift of salvation, meaning you cannot work your way to heaven. 
He has offered this to each and every one of you if you'll accept it. Um, but the reality is, it was extremely costly. It cost Jesus his life. <laughs> and for you, if you choose to accept him, it will be costly for you as well. You will possibly lose family. You will possibly lose friends. You will possibly lose a job. All kinds of relationships may be broken down because you don't do the things you used to do. You don't speak the way you used to speak. It will be costly, but it is a free gift. It's important for us to keep that in mind. And the other promise here is that the rewards will always be fair and equitable. We know that because God is always fair and he is equitable. And the reminder here is that we are to look towards the eternal and not focus and spend all of our time on the temporal. It's temporary. It's not going to last. So the, the pointing is back to the eternal. And then in verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You can imagine how the other ten felt. I mean, here's these two guys trying to get a better seat at the table. And, and by the way, these sons of thunder, these great mighty fishermen, what happened? Mommy has to go ask. I mean, what a bunch of sissies. Like, I got mommy having to ask so they can get a better seat at the table. So these guys are all indignant about James and John coming to beg for a better spot. But I'm also reminded of this. How often am I easily offended by the actions of others? How often do I look at other people, other believers, and go, boy, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they acted in this way. What are they trying to do, jockey for position? It's, we're so quick in our wicked hearts to come up with that. But, but here's the reality. Jesus gives so much more than we deserve. That's precisely what mercy is, after all. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And he is the master of grace and mercy. He's the very embodiment of grace and mercy, not getting what we deserve. I deserve hell and death eternally. That's just the reality. But he's, because he's merciful, he said, no, I don't think so. And so we've all been given so much more than what we deserve. Now then, continuing on in verse 25, but Jesus called to them, called them to himself, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. And yet, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Boy, if there's a spot to highlight, <laughs> highlight that. And what we see is Jesus is giving them a little lesson on servant leadership. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom... It's just as simple as this. Serve. Don't spend your time asking, oh, nobody prayed for me. wonder who's going to pray for me today. But instead, go find people to pray for. If you're having a conversation with someone and they fill you in on what's going on in their life and they say, boy, would you pray for this? Don't give them the Christian, oh, yeah, I'll be praying for you, brother. I'll be praying. Because the reality is we leave and we forget completely to pray. I want to encourage you when you're asked to pray for something, uh, this is earth shattering, pray right then and there. Don't miss the opportunity. You'll be blessed. They'll be blessed. It's wonderful. Take that opportunity to pray. And don't ask, who cares about me? Nobody cares. Nobody loves me. My grandpa used to say, oh, nobody loves you. 
Nobody cares. Might as well go eat big fat willy worms. All right, that's just you. Oh. And, but we, we act like that so often. But the reality is in the kingdom of heaven, we're called to go and care for others. If you want to work yourself out of a depression, the best way to do it, and I'm not talking about clinical depression, don't get me wrong, there are lots of things that we need doctors for, but I'm talking about just this, this feeling of being depressed, here's the best way to do it. Go and care about others. Focus on something bigger than yourself. So many times we get focused on our deal and our situation. Go and focus on others. You'll feel a whole lot better about your spot that you're in. I promise you that. And here's the key to being a servant. It's humility. It's in humility. For most of my life, this term, uh, being a minister, was one that, I, that I'd heard thrown out there. That, that, oh, he's a minister, and he deserves tremendous amount of respect because uh, this person's a minister of God. And I thought, wow, like a minister and a bank president. Those are like the two things. I'm like, you've got to be big time to be those things. And, and it wasn't until actually being called into ministry that I understood what that really means. Uh, being a minister means you are called into being a servant. For a minister to truly be respected, they should be serving more than, than anybody else because it's a call to service. It's not a call to, hey, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. You need to serve me. Go here, do this. It's a call into a life of servanthood. And so when I was called into ministry uh, back in Farmington, Missouri and, and going to Parkland Chapel, it was this amazing uh, Holy Spirit moment, and God told me to go and feed my sheep. I didn't know what he meant by that, but I, I went to my pastor and I said, this is, this is what happened. This is this crazy Holy Spirit moment down on my knees, on my face, and I told God yes. I didn't know what I said yes to, but I said yes. So what does that look like, being called into ministry? And so he began to meet with me and pray with me, and we sat out by the pond, this little picnic table, and he gave me some books to read and people to listen to, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what ministry looks like. You see the pond out here? Yes, sir, I see it. I can't stand looking at those cattails growing up around the pond. I mean, they're so annoying. They're awful, and then people can't enjoy the pond. So uh, how would you feel about getting a weed eater and weed whacking uh, this one-acre pond for a couple hours a week? I'm like, okay. So being called by uh, God Most High looks like weed whacking the pond for a couple hours? But then I realized that if you won't uh, weed eat God's pond, you sure aren't going to plant any seeds in his garden. Pastor Mike didn't come up with that last part. That was all me. So if you want to highlight what was me, that was, I just want to make that clear. But that's the reality. If we won't weed eat God's pond, we are not going to be called on, be trusted with an opportunity to plant seeds in his garden. And so many times we're called into these things and they don't look that glorious, but that's precisely what being a minister, being in ministry looks like. And so the question comes to us is, are you really willing? Are you willing to do whatever is necessary in order to meet people's needs? Because I will also share this with you. Um, ministering to people and ministry needs, it is never, 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 no, not never convenient. It is always inconvenient. And so many times we pack our whole schedule in and we go, Lord, I got all these things to do, but I could squeeze you in for some kind of service between 9 and 9.30 every other Tuesday. 
Lord, call me to do whatever you'd have me to do with that half hour. God didn't work that way. <laughs> he gives us all sorts of things that are completely and totally inconvenient, that disrupt our schedules. It's not a reason not to come up with the schedule. Man plots his way, but the Lord directs his path. So let the Lord direct your path. Let him uh, inconvenience you every now and again for Jesus' sake. You'll be surprised what happens. Now then in verse 29, And now as they went out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, <clears throat> Son of David. And so Jesus is heading uh, towards Jerusalem. He's passing through this area of Jericho. If you think geographically, Jericho is only located about 15 miles uh, to the south and to the east of Jerusalem. So it's along the road on the way towards Jerusalem. And it's also known as a city, especially at that time, for growing a particular plant. And this plant, they would uh, make a salve, a healing salve with it. And so it was called the City of Palms, and they would make this salve that was believed to actually cure blindness of all things. And so what we find is in Jericho and around the city, there is a large proliferation of blind people who are coming here to be healed. So Jesus is there around Jericho, and as he heads that direction, these men cry out from the side of the street. And the Greek word for cried out is actually the word akrazo, which is the same as a woman crying out in labor pains. So you can imagine the shrill scream of these men, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I mean, they were crying out, just letting it belt out, which is precisely why Verse 31, and then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. you got to love the multitude. They're always looking to shut people down. Between the multitude and the disciples wanting to shut people up, these guys all need a little more Jesus. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And so Jesus stood still, and he called to them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? Oh, Lord. I'm so thankful when he says things like that. I mean, here's two blind guys. <laughs> I mean, uh, can't see. Got a blind, can't see. But the Lord asks, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And so Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. And so we see the, the Lord is approached by these two men, what we learn is, is several things. First of all, they cry out to him, Son of David. That's important because that's actually his messianic title, Son of David. He's supposed to be from the line of David, through the line of Jesse. That's where the Messiah would come from. And so they knew this. They'd heard this. And they cry out to him, acknowledging his title as the Son of David. And we see three different things as we wrap up today. First of all, you see the compassion of Jesus. Notice with me is he could have just continued to walk by. No doubt there were thousands in the crowd, but he stopped and he stood still and he called these men to himself. And as he calls these men to himself, he doesn't just say be healed, but he does something very important. He actually touches them. He touches these men who next to lepers in this society were considered untouchable. It was believed if you were blind, it was because of some, some sin, some awful thing that's happened in your life, but it was no doubt a you problem, something you've done against God to cause you to be blind. 
And so they were considered untouchable. But what Jesus does is he has compassion. That's, that's mercy, right? Compassion in action is mercy. He touches them on their eyes. Then secondly, we see a, a feature of coming attractions. What do we mean by that? Well, uh, Jesus, when he gets his ministry started way back in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what Jesus uh, rolls open to, Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he sat down. Now the, the saying of Isaiah, the, the teaching of Isaiah wasn't done there. That prophecy wasn't. It goes on to speak of the wrath of God and actually setting all things right again. Jesus separated out his first coming from his second coming, but what he was doing there is he was giving them a sneak preview of what this fulfillment was going to look like because when he comes back on his second coming, this partial fulfillment is going to be a complete and total fulfillment. Sickness is going to be taken care of. Blind are going to see. The deaf are going to hear. All these things that were promised are going to be fully taken care of in his second coming. So we get this sneak preview of what's to come. And then thirdly, we see his salvation in the midst of their desperation. These men were desperate. They were crying out from the roadside for the son of David. But I'd ask you, how did they know he could do what they believed he could? Because they listened. They didn't have the ability to see. They couldn't read. They couldn't actually even find their way around. They had to be led by other people. The only way they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah is if they would have heard this truth and they would have not just simply heard, let it go in one ear and out the other ear like can so often happen to us, but instead they listened. And they didn't just stop only at listening, but then they believed. They believed in their heart that he could do what he said he could do, what they'd heard about him. And so as they cried out in desperation, what they essentially did is they walked down the road of an unbeliever to salvation. They cried out, Son of David, have mercy on us. What is that? That's confession with their mouth, right? They confess with their mouth. They, they, if they're going to confess, then they believed in their heart that he could do this thing. So they confessed with their mouth, they believed with their heart, and then they received salvation. It didn't just stop there for these men either. What do we see at the end of this verse? Immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. When Jesus truly opens your spiritual eyes, that is the reaction. It is a confession of your mouth. It is a belief in your heart. It's an eye-opening experience. For the first time ever, you will be able to see things as they truly are, not burdened by the temporary only, but see things eternally, where this whole thing is headed. And then, and then the heart position is to follow him. And so if you're still struggling with those three simple steps, let me encourage you today, make that right. Believe in him. Confess him with your mouth. And then choose to follow. And then wait and see what happens. It's as simple as a laborer in the vineyard. 
It's as simple as just being willing to be obedient, being willing to be made willing on a daily basis. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for opening the eyes of the blind. Thank you, Father, for those in here in this room whose eyes have been opened to be able to see the eternal things. I pray for us you'd be able to remind us Remind us that there is this eternal hope of glory that we have, that we are not burdened down just simply by carrying our cross daily, but there is a promise of resurrection. Where there is the cross, there is resurrection. And so, Lord, help us to be able to remember that and convey that to others as we get to share with them. Lord, and if there is any that does not believe in you or has not confessed or has not been yet been willing to follow you, Lord Jesus, may today be the day. Today is the day for salvation, says the Lord. And so, Father, please call them unto you and let them be chosen. Let them be chosen as worthy workers to go into the field. No doubt we can look at what's taking place in the world, and it's obvious that the harvest is near. When exactly, we don't know, but we can see the sign of the times. So, Lord, please help more workers to come out and work the fields, Lord. Father, we thank you for all that you are, all that you have been, all that you will be. Thank you for not changing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah Louder than the unbelief I raise a hallelujah My weapon is a melody I raise a hallelujah Heaven comes to fight for me I'm gonna sing In the middle of the storms Louder and louder You're gonna hear my praises roar Up from the ashes Hope will arise Death is defeated The King is alive With everything inside of me I raise a hallelujah And I watch the darkness flee I raise a hallelujah In the middle of the mystery I raise a hallelujah your hold on me I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm louder and louder you're gonna hear my praises roar up from the ashes hope will arise death is 
Church says, Amen.